Lil' gums bleeding. Friday evening, it was all about eating. When I became a teen, it was all about beefing. Now I'm ready for the world. Trying to sink my teeth in. Stacking extra. Hey guys, welcome to episode 38 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today's episode is called Yoga and Recovery. We're kicking it old school today with two guests instead of one, like how I used to do it in the early days of the podcast, because both of my guests are yoga teachers who used yoga in their own recovery from eating disorders. Now they help others to improve their relationships to food and their bodies. My first guest is Anastasia Nevin, who is a registered yoga teacher as well as a registered dietitian and a colleague and friend of mine. In just a minute, we'll hear from her how yoga was an integral part of her sort of non-traditional path to recovery from an eating disorder. And then my second guest is Sarah Joy Marsh, also a registered yoga teacher and author of the new book, Hunger, Hope, and Healing, A Yoga Approach to Reclaiming Your Relationship with Your Body and Food. It's a really good one. And she also created her own recovery process that involved yoga as well as training in art therapy. Uh, And she shares a lot of great insights that could help anyone who's struggling with eating issues. So I'm really excited for you to hear both of these guests and uh, we'll get into this episode in just a minute. But first, I want to point you to a couple of great resources for helping improve your relationship with food. The first is my free quiz to assess your relationship with food and see how healthy it is. I'll send you your results via email along with more than a dozen personalized, individualized tips to help you make peace with food wherever you might fall on the spectrum right now. Take the quiz and get your results today at christyharrison.com quiz. That's christyharrison.com quiz. The second resource I want to share is my Intuitive Eating Online course. It's a 13-week program that I created to help you work through all the principles of intuitive eating in depth and really demystify and troubleshoot the common areas where people tend to get stuck. I'll show you how to recognize the diet mentality, even in its subtle forms, and how to start substituting healthy thoughts instead. I'll share my secrets to making food and exercise choices from a place of self-care rather than self-control. And I'll teach you how to navigate emotional eating and how to stop alternating between restricting and overeating. And so, so, so much more. Several participants have shared that the course has helped them make peace with their quote off-limits foods already. As one participant put it after trying one of their quote unquote bad foods, I felt free, sweet, sweet freedom. Why was I so afraid of this food? I doubt I'll feel the need to buy another package when this one's gone, but just knowing it's off the bad list tastes and feels like a huge epiphany. What a moment of power. Participants are also having major revelations about how the diet mentality is hanging on in hidden ways. As one participant put it, before doing this module, I really thought I had given up the diet mentality. Now I realize that although I consciously reject dieting, I still have plenty of work to do towards accepting myself as I am. It was great. It really helped me identify what I need to work on by bringing it to my full awareness. And yet another participant shared this beautiful revelation she had in the course. My worth is not my weight or my looks, but my heart, mind, and soul. I need to trade in my self-judgment for self-love and compassion. It feels impossible some days, but I'm going to do my best. I deserve it. If you'd like to join others on this intuitive eating journey and have some beautiful revelations of your own, go to christyharrison.com course to learn more and sign up. That's christyharrison.com course. 
And then finally, if you like the podcast and want to help us reach more people who need to hear the body positive message, you can leave us a great review on iTunes. And I really appreciate people who've left reviews so far. Just open up iTunes on your computer, type in Food Psych to the search bar, click the result that comes up under podcasts, and then go to the ratings and reviews tab. There you can leave a rating and reviews, sharing what you love about the podcast. And I'm so, so grateful for these nice reviews because they help bring us up in the ratings and help more people find these positive messages. Before we do, I just want to say thanks so much to all the people who have been writing in recently with good feedback about the podcast. It really means a lot to me to hear it's been resonating with you, and I'm happy to have so many new listeners joining us. So tell me what you think at foodpsychpod at gmail.com or uh, leave a comment on the website, foodpsychpod.com. There is also a, a way, sort of a more formal way to share your ideas on the podcast, which is our survey. If you go to foodpsychpod.com slash survey, you can take it there. And uh, I was initially going to read some responses from the survey on this episode, but since we now have two guests, it's just going to be a really long one anyway, so I don't want to make this intro super long, but uh, I'm planning on reading some survey responses on the next episode. So if you want a chance to get yours in there, go to foodpsychpod.com slash survey and fill that out. And thanks to everyone who's written in with the surveys. Just know that I've been reading them and really enjoying them, even if I haven't had a chance to read any on the podcast lately. The website, by the way, is also where you can support the podcast and get the listener discount for my nutrition counseling services. So just go to foodpsychpod.com and click on the Christy Harrison nutrition banner from any page, and you can use the offer code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, at checkout to save 30% on nutrition counseling. So without further ado, let's talk to Anastasia Nevin. She and I are sitting in my office in Manhattan eating peanut butter and bananas. And this, you said, is a significant food to you. Well, um, it's one of my favorite foods, food combinations, Mm -hmm. um, and things that I just like to eat in general. Me too. Um, So that's one of the reasons I chose it. Mm -hmm. And the other reason is because in the past, it sort of was a food that I used to struggle with or um, kind of tended to maybe overeat sometimes. So it's sort of changed you know, throughout my life. Yeah, I totally identify with that because it was also, for me, a food that I both loved and would sort of not allow myself in certain points of my, you know, history and then would end up overeating. Yeah. So, and now I eat it every day for breakfast. Yeah, it's, it feels too. like a victory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's also a really good breakfast. It's delicious. It's, it helps, like, I feel like I have a lot of energy all day when I eat this for mm-hmm. breakfast or at least, you know, until lunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so tell me about like, you know, going back to the beginning, how your relationship to food began and where you ended up getting into trouble. Mm-hmm. So my family and my parents are Russian Jewish immigrants mm-hmm. and um, really the way that I grew up was um, sort of with always having too much food mm. at home because it was, in a way, kind of compensating for these periods of starvation that my family members had experienced. Oh, wow. And so there was such a kind of um, 
you know, like going overboard oftentimes mm-hmm. with food and also like this really generous hospitality that comes oftentimes with the culture, but mm-hmm. it's like nonstop, nonstop food and nonstop eating. Yeah. Um, and pressure to eat, pressure to sort of keep up. Or- yeah, like just eat more, eat more, mm-hmm. um, kind of. I would say that there's a lot of anxiety that runs in my family and food was always the way that I watched mm. a lot of my family members kind of cope with their anxiety was mm-hmm. through overeating. Yeah. Um, but pretty much my whole childhood and into my teenage years, I didn't really, I didn't have any issues with food. Mm-hmm. I liked to eat. I was a dancer. Mm-hmm. So I was in the ballet world. Oh, but I was, yeah. But I was always pretty small. Mm-hmm. Um, so you got away with not having to worry about. So I ate a lot, but I, yeah. I was just naturally kind of small framed. Right. Um, so which, you didn't have that pressure. Which later of... became a different issue because when my body changed, that was like a source of my identity that yeah. I felt uncomfortable with who I was if I wasn't the smallest one. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, I just remember having like really enjoying food, having mm-hmm. a lot of big meals with my family members, having it be something that's beautiful and celebrated, um, and that was sort of the way it was when I was raised mm-hmm. until a certain point. Yeah. So what yeah. changed, and how did that how did that manifest? So I think it was um, a variety of coinciding factors when I was pretty much at the end of my high school years. Mm-hmm. First of all, you know, my, my body started to change just mm-hmm. naturally. Um, I think for me, there was quite a bit of anxiety that I, you know, something that I struggle with kind of just naturally, mm-hmm. but um, I get the few things that happened around that time were that I was fighting a lot with my mom Mm, yeah Um, and because there was such a big pressure from her and in my family of like eat 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 Mm -hmm. that was my way of rejecting starting to reject that kind of love and affection right and trying to find my own independence Um, I think for me sort of what really triggered some of the disordered behaviors though was some health issues that I had Mm. so I was having a lot of stomach problems and digestive problems and I was diagnosed with Hashimoto's which is I have that too yeah autoimmune thyroid and Mm -hmm. so I started um seeing a bunch of kind of more alternative holistic healers who Mm. were telling me about very restrictive eating patterns right and that kind of um in an effort to control my gastro symptoms, mm-hmm. I started kind of playing around with the different diets, even though I wasn't trying to lose weight. Right. I just was trying to understand what was happening to my body. Mm-hmm. And that was the catalyst. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I identify with that a lot, too, yeah. that like health issues are sort of the precipitating factor yeah. for, for a lot of people. Big time. And I yeah. know that there's research now about connecting autoimmune yeah. disease with eating disorders, which yeah. I had no idea about until uh, t- until recently. Yeah, I know. It's super fascinating, and it kind of makes you wonder what what's the cause and what's the effect or, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, and your situation, I, I 
went through something very similar, which was, you know, not really knowing what was wrong with me, getting a bunch of tests done, finding out I had Hashimoto's, but then maybe there was something else going on. And, you know, during that time, I was also becoming more and more restrictive and Mm -hmm. more and more obsessive about my food and also just other aspects of my health. Like, yeah, if there was anything I could be doing to to influence things. Yeah. Because I think it's scary to think something's out of your control. Yeah, I can really relate to that. Yeah. Yes, that was, that was, I think, the biggest trigger for me. And so then what did you start, like, what happened from there? So um, really where where the eating disorder took its form was in college Mm -hmm. for me. Um, And I think just being in a new environment, um, trying, you know, dance was such a big part of my life, but it was... I was trying to figure out where I fit in. Mm-hmm. Did you still as do a dance dancer? in yeah. college? Yeah. yeah, I danced a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I felt sort of insecure about whether I was good enough or where mm-hmm. was my right type of dance. You know, I yeah. wasn't. I was. I had a ballet background, but I wasn't quite a ballerina. Mm-hmm. And I think just my own kind of insecurities. Um, you know, the other thing about what I mentioned in terms Mm -hmm. of my family always kind of pushing a lot of food is I feel like I learned to not listen to my own fullness Mm -hmm. cues. So I didn't know really when I was hungry or full because I was just sort of told when Mm -hmm. to eat and to eat a lot. Right. And so being in college and being on my own and trying to figure out, you know, the food that I needed, Mm -hmm. um, my patterns just started to get off and, um, yeah, and so... And college is such a such a fearful time and such an uncertain time. Yeah. I guess yeah. it's, it's kind of easy for those insecurities yeah. to really flare up. Because you're trying you know? to figure out who you really are and mm-hmm. you're off on your own. And then, you know, you have to disentangle what you believe in versus what yeah. you've been taught. Yeah, and there's almost this... I mean, for me, I definitely felt that there was this, like, desire to reject all of it, you know? It was like I didn't... I didn't trust that I was good enough, you know, the way that my parents had raised me and the way that I sort of innately was. I didn't trust that any of that was good enough. I saw these other people, like, behaving in other ways, and, you know, I was like, maybe I should be like that person or, you know, reject all this stuff and try a new, try to find a new path. And that's, I think it's, it's really unfortunate that that has to happen, and I'm glad I came out of it, and I feel like I've come back a lot to my roots. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think there there has to be, I feel like there needs to be some education around, like, figuring out who you are without completely rejecting the good parts. Exactly. You know? And and I feel like what I've noticed, at least in myself, is that is that comes back around over time. Yeah. Hopefully. Right, right, exactly. Ideally, yeah. you're going to sort of return to who you were yeah. at a younger age. So what, like, how long did the, the period of eating disorder, you know, last for you, and what helped you get out yeah. of it? Yeah, so I would say um, it's sort of, was at its worst in the first, like, the first few years of my college experience mm-hmm. um, is when I sort of hit the bottom. Yeah. Um, and what helped me get out of it was, um, you know, it's a funny question because I don't know if there's a clear answer. Yeah. I guess it wasn't necessarily other people's concern, although I had that. Mm-hmm. It was just me feeling fed up. Mm. with feeling like shit yeah <laughs> and um and feeling like this is not really who I am yeah like, I'm not really I'm meant to help other people mm-hmm. and not to be stuck in this super destructive 
pattern. That's amazing. So you had some intuition about... Yeah, there there was some sort of intuition, although I kicked and screamed along the way to actually do it. Right, totally. Um, But I would say that what's been maybe unusual about my journey, maybe not, is Mm -hmm. that I kind of did it my way, Mm -hmm. myself. Yeah. Um, I mean, I had great supporters around me, you know, great relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, But I didn't have a traditional Western treatment. Right, right. Yoga was actually my treatment. Mm, Yeah. And that was a huge piece of my recovery. That's so interesting. I actually really identify with that, too, because I didn't have traditional treatment either. I didn't go to a center. I didn't have, like, a you know, an outpatient. I mean, I had an outpatient therapist who was great, but I think it was also kind of serendipitous the way it worked out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Were there, was there anyone who, like, planted a seed for you, though, or, you know? Um, you know, when I – so I, I, um, I was in a relationship at that time, mm-hmm. and the person I was with was incredibly kind of loving and supportive mm-hmm. and urged me to get help. Um, so I started working I – was I was living in San Francisco at the mm-hmm. time, and I started doing a little bit of kind of um, – therapeutic work with a woman who was a holistic health counselor but Mm. also part of their group they ran these cooking classes and had women's groups and it was more it was more holistic right it was more yoga philosophy based Mm -hmm. Um, but I remember having the first session in that office Mm -hmm. and having this kind of aha moment about like this is this is what I want to do. Mm, I just felt like she, the way that it was set up felt so healing. Mm-hmm. And I started to feel more interested in becoming a woman who was powerful mm-hmm. um, and empowered versus where I was. And so I yeah. did have a few women like that who really did uh, inspire me. I think, yeah, getting sort of political about it and, and seeing those, like, feminist ideals played out in other people is so inspiring. Like, yeah. That came a lot, and that came a lot for me from the yoga world because mm-hmm. it's a different, it's a di- they're different values. Yeah, they really are. It's different values, different values than coming from the dance world. Mm-hmm. It's a different body that's valued. Yeah. It's a different lifestyle that's valued. It's more about health and balance right. versus, you know, d- basically... <laughs> Running yourself thin. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and being powerful is okay. Being, you know, a different body shape is okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's still, I guess, a little bit of body, you know, a certain body type is, is sort of more accepted in the yoga world still, but it's less, it's less one sort of way than in dance. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. And then also this, I mean, to me too, when I discovered yoga, the idea of non-competition, non-competitiveness was so mind-blowing because I had never been part of a sport or any, really anything, because I think my family is pretty competitive, but yoga was, I think, the first time that I participated in something that actively fought against that and, and told me like, no, just where you are don't yeah. look at what your neighbor is doing it yeah. doesn't matter I remember when I first came to yoga it was so 
powerful powerful for me to hear this message about not fighting against yourself mm-hmm. or making peace with yourself. Yeah. And that idea, like I just remember sobbing oh, <laughs> for like yeah. months in every yoga class I took because just letting go of this constant war I was fighting yeah. against myself felt just profound, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it was very intense. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've had the same, a similar experience. I would definitely like block myself from crying in yoga classes though. Cause I, at first I was like, this is not, I shouldn't be crying here. Like, <laughs> but actually I think a, the mark of a good yoga class is when you start crying. Yeah. <laughs> Letting go. Letting go. Yeah. So you, you're a yoga teacher now. I am. Um, how did you start that journey? Was, was that kind of the beginning of? That was the beginning. Seed? And and pretty soon into it, again, it was sort of this intuition mm-hmm. where I knew that I needed to be doing yeah. this. I mean, I knew I knew for a long time that I wanted to be working as some sort of healer, um, mm. but I wasn't sure in what capacity because I, you know, I studied psychology right, and I was interested right. in being some sort of therapist. But I knew movement for me had to be part of it because coming from a dance background and also Mm -hmm. I just think that we have to use our bodies to heal or else it doesn't work it's not Mm. integrative interesting so can't be like a head head first approach kind of thing yeah for me that just didn't feel right Mm -hmm. so I knew that whatever I was doing needed to use the body yeah and so yoga um I guess I just I fell in love with yoga Mm -hmm. it made sense to me it felt it just felt like this is who I am yeah and so I started, um, I did a, a few trainings in San Francisco. And then when I moved to New York, I immediately started the teacher training here. Mm. Um, and I immediately started teaching, I think, even before I had officially graduated. Wow. Yeah. That was in 2009. Oh, that's awesome. So you really, you, your journey out of it kind of started with yoga. Yeah, there. I mean, I think my journey was not that I was completely finished with all my food issues, and then I started doing what I really felt like doing. There was definitely an overlap, and the overlap helped me get better, Yeah, because I felt like I have a purpose. Mm-hmm. I need to be okay in order to serve other people. Yeah. And and I there's no option to not be okay. Right, exactly. So you have to eat. You have to take care of yourself. You have to be a role model. Mm-hmm. And that was, just, just for me, that was so much stronger, that voice, yeah. than anything else. So I had to go in that direction. I completely relate to that, too. I feel like I, I had to become the person I wanted to be because of where I put myself in my career yeah you know and it, it definitely wasn't linear either it yeah. was like each step of the way I learned something new I became you know I mean my f- sort of first thing my first step out of it I think was becoming a food journalist because then I had to experience all these different yeah. things eat all kinds of food so you know but yeah. I was definitely still kind of disordered even when I was starting out yeah. as a food journalist and then I went back to school for nutrition I had kind of gotten less and less disordered through the food journalism process. It like wore away at my restrictive tendencies and but you know, I was still kind of weird about food in some ways. And when I when I decided to go back to school for nutrition, there was definitely a part of my of my brain that was like, maybe this will be the key. Maybe this will finally help me lose weight and get the body I want or whatever. Mm. Um, and you know, it started out, I think nutrition, maybe you can relate to this, but I think when you study nutrition, there's definitely some aspects that can support a disordered Absolutely. relationship to food and and there are definitely nutritionists out there Absolutely. who have a disordered relationship to food and probably you know, many 
Yeah, I read some study that said something like, you yeah. know, 50% or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've definitely heard people talk, you know, now knowing more about kind of a healthy relationship to food, I, I can hear it sometimes in other nutritionists, you know, approaches that there's still this sort of restrictive, like some foods are off limits kind of Good foods, mentality. Bad. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I was lucky that I stumbled into classes with some professors that were very, you know, no nonsense, very smart about food and helped me sort of relate to it in a better way. Mm-hmm. And, um, the concept of uh, homeostasis, I think, really stuck with me, too, because I was like, oh, right, like at a certain point, your body knows where it needs to be and it reaches sort of a set point and more or less, you know, doesn't really influence it. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, that that really, I mean, that re- resonates for me also, mm-hmm. just this idea of our body is our teacher. Yeah. And, and, and using yoga, actually, as a way to really connect to that, to yeah. that feeling of, intuition and trusting that if we feed ourselves and take care of ourselves and and yes it does also require some acceptance because oftentimes it's not what we think it should be right but that ultimately we will feel good Mm -hmm. if we can connect to that inner knowing yeah and there's so many things that kind of strip away the inner knowing or or get us farther and farther away from it but if you can reconnect to it through something like yoga or meditation right. spiritual practice in mm-hmm. some way it's mm-hmm. it's so helpful and yeah listening to your body I think is is a, a thing that western you know westerners aren't really trained to do yeah so um so you kind of started in yoga and then what made you decide to go back to school for nutrition are we already I was already <laughs> doing it yeah. so I moved to New York to come to graduate oh, school gotcha. okay. so in my second semester of graduate school I was also doing my yoga teacher gotcha. training um, being the crazy person that I am sometimes. <laughs> yeah, that's like so on the weekends, I was doing this intensive training. In the, mm-hmm. On the week, I was doing school. Um, and and there was that moment for me when I decided to, to go to graduate school that there was that decision that mm-hmm. this is – you can never go back. Yeah. You're going to graduate school in nutrition, and there is no going back to the way you were. Mm-hmm. So for me, there was this feeling of like – holding myself accountable on some level yeah. by choosing that path. Um, so I, um, and I knew from the beginning that I wanted to work with eating disorders, that I wanted mm. to work around, you know, with body image, relationship mm-hmm. to food, and, and more the psychological aspects of it than the actual um, nutrition in a right. way. Yeah. I'm super drawn to it for that reason, yeah. too. I think, like, it took me a while to get there, though, actually, because I think I, I didn't, right away think that my own experience could help me change or you know influence other people's paths like I I sort of thought like well I'm done with that now let me let me help other people like do the right thing I think that was maybe some aspect of the Mm -hmm. disorder still was that like well there's a right way to eat and there's a right way to relate to food and I'm gonna you know teach other people about that rather than this idea that like oh my journey has has given me some tools that I can help impart to other people yeah. and, you know, discover their own path. But I think, unfortunately, there's a lot of shame mm-hmm. ar- and stigma still around that in a way. Yeah. And I've experienced that. I think there might be more of that in New York <laughs> yeah. than there is in California. Yeah. Um, really that, you know, 
if you're a professional that works in this field, you should not share your story right. because it's not okay. Yeah, that's true. That whole sort of um, East Coast West Coast divide of like disclosing and how yeah. much to how much to share. Yeah, yeah I agree. Although I feel like um, New York has a lot of people who are maybe not the traditional in the traditional field that do share their own. Yeah, you know, like health coaches. Now I hear about that more and more. Yeah. yeah, 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 totally. But it's kind of taken a while to trickle over here. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, when did you start feeling comfortable sharing your story or, you know, using that in your work with clients? Um, I would say probably around two years ago, so fairly recently. Yeah. Um, and for a while I just felt like I wasn't in a community where I was given permission to do that. Yeah. And then, you know, I switched jobs and I worked Mm -hmm. at Montanito and, and was in a place where it's actually celebrated, um, to really be yourself. And it, and it completely changed for me the way I worked because mm-hmm. I felt like I was being authentic. I could use my own experience to connect to people. Yeah. Um, and and it makes a big difference. It really does. Yeah, not having to hide that aspect of who you are or couch your responses to people in this, like, neutral language. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not really yeah. relate. And probably, at, you know, enhanced your your healing I it would felt imagine. that way yeah yeah it felt that way it felt like really stepping into the role that I needed to be in but doing it from an honest place yeah definitely using using your experience mm-hmm. and so what would you say now to someone who's struggling with their own eating issues and that's a great question um I guess what I would say is and and firmly believe because I live it. Yeah, is that you can have a life that's free of this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still, I still have moments sometimes where I'm going through my day and I'm you know eating my meals or whatever, mm-hmm. and I'm I stop and I'm just like wow. Yeah, the fact that there's nothing, there's no thought about it, there's no guilt about mm-hmm. it, there's no anxiety about it. Um, it's so incredible and I never I never thought that was possible yeah so that's the message I would give is that it's completely possible to heal yeah I completely agree with that I totally identify and I'm I think gratitude is really important too to think like god how far have I come you Mm -hmm. know 10 years ago I would not have been sitting here eating this peanut butter and banana yeah. and, like, enjoying myself, yeah. you know? I actually wanted to share that, um, and I just remembered that last mm-hmm. time I was in California, re- my most recent trip back uh-huh. in December, um, you know, n- my family was kind of awkward with this whole mm. thing. Like, they didn't really know how to help me. Yeah. They, they think they were kind of angry. They seemed angry at me, and mm. I, I can understand now in hindsight that it's so hard to see someone you love doing something destructive. Yeah. Um, but the way that they were trying to convey that message, just it didn't work for me. And it yeah. was kind of, um, you know, kind of humorous sometimes, mm-hmm. especially coming from my grandparents who, you know, really don't understand, like they don't understand anorexia or what that right. really means. But um, so no one, you know, even though now... I have a very different relationship with my family. No one has really said, hmm. oh, it's so amazing, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, but my grandfather most recently actually made a comment that mm-hmm. he's um, so proud and that he can see it took so much courage oh, wow. for me to have overcome 
this thing. That's and that amazing. was really cool. Yeah. So that was a, a special moment um, and, and a moment of gratitude. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think made him say that? Like, what do you um, know? What clicked for him? Or I think just seeing me look happy and healthy. Yeah. Yeah, there's a real difference, I think, that's visible in people, you know, yeah. and, and even if someone doesn't understand it, I mean, and looks can always be deceiving too, but like, you know, if you really can sense that someone's yeah. living authentically. And it's energy and, too. Yeah. You know, whether someone's present or not. Yeah. Whether someone's something, you know, their mind is overactive and they're not really there or whatever it is. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a feeling. Yeah. More groundedness, more presence. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And yeah, I think like knowing it's possible to to have that and not have the chatter in the back of your mind about the food or about your body or whatever it is 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 amazing yeah it opens up a lot of (laughs) a lot more space a lot more time can get a lot done yeah Yeah. a lot more time for for everything everything (laughs) everything oh it's amazing yeah so you have a private practice now and you're also teaching yoga yeah um, and do you feel like you have a good balance these days with like work and life? And I, I do. I feel yeah. really grateful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I'm one of those people who can say that I love what I do. Yeah. Um, and and um, even though it's it can be hard work and <laughs> intense work, it's yeah. Um, it I love it. I love it. So, um, and the combination. Mm-hmm. With yoga and talking about nutrition and food, and then combining the two when I can yeah. do different workshops or programs. Um, it's, totally, it's great. And you're doing a, a meal support uh, yoga workshop right now. Yeah, right? I'm. Or, I, it's starting soon. It's a six it, yeah. week. It's a yoga therapy and meal support group. Nice. So we do a yoga class that has a certain theme, like acceptance mm. or truth. And then we eat a meal together and we process the whole experience. So it's more, it's using mindfulness and using connecting to your body mm-hmm. to add another layer of, of your eating experience. That's really cool. So, and do you find that after a yoga class like that, people respond differently to the food? Absolutely. And yeah, yeah. Open up more to flavors or, you yeah. know. And just have different a different type of awareness even going into the meal because mm-hmm. you've spent an hour just connecting to your body. Right. Yeah. So there's a certain amount of like body anxiety that must dissipate or mm-hmm. you know at least take a backseat. Yeah. In that Hopefully. process. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And I think mindfulness is so such an important tool also. Like and to be able to be present with food and enjoy the sensory aspects of it, enjoy, you know, let your body feel good when you are properly nourished Mm -hmm. and let yourself enjoy the flavors, types of food. I think for me, the way that's manifested a lot is cooking. Yeah. Because, I mean, I just sort of taught myself, but I love, Mm -hmm. I love cooking and, um, and that's, to me is a really healing process to cook and then enjoy a meal Mm -hmm. and, um, yeah, and to savor in it. Totally. Intuitive cooking, too. I like that you're self-taught. <laughs> <laughs> I think about that a lot because I'm like, I don't really ever follow recipes yeah. anymore. I just kind of really throw a bunch of stuff together, and usually it works out. Sometimes it doesn't, yeah. but, you know. And then you learn. You learn, yeah, like what flavors work, <laughs> what techniques don't, yeah. mm-hmm, stuff like that. So um, that's awesome. Well, do you have a website that people can find you? Yeah, so I have a website. It's anastasia-health.com. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, and it has all my 
yoga, nutrition stuff up on there, my contact information. Perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. (laughs) It's really great to have you. Thank you, Christy. So that was Anastasia Nevin, and thanks again to her for coming on. Uh, you can find her at, like she said, her website, anastasia-health.com, and her name is spelled A-N-A-S-T-A-S-I-A. Like, Anastasia has the answers from uh, the children's book. Anyone? Anyone? But it's pronounced the correct way, Anastasia. So let's get into our second guest now. This is Sarah Joy Marsh. Uh, She joined me by Skype because she was in Massachusetts teaching a class at Kripalu, the yoga center up there. And I asked her to share how her personal eating disorder history has influenced her career. I share quite a bit of my personal history with students in the context of helping us all understand how we got hungry Mm. and how we ended up engaging in disordered patterns with food or our body image and our thoughts about ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so just this morning, I was talking with my students about my own history. And some of the things that really stand out for me include the nature of my mother's relationship to her body and my father's relationship to his PTSD. Mm. And the way those two things weave together, my mother's relationship with her body and her life, I often describe it like a flat line of depression. Mm. I'm a yoga teacher, and I draw a lot of stick figures for my students when I'm giving them homework assignments on what kinds of yoga poses to do. (laughs) And if I were to draw a stick figure of my mother from my experience of her in childhood, it would be a flat line with a head on the end pointing down with her lying face down on the couch. Mm, Wow! That's my visceral memory of my mother's experience of her vitality and her life and Mm. her emotional availability and so on. If I drew a picture of my father as a stick figure... He would be like a cartoon character that has a lot of swiggles moving outwards in very chaotic directions. Mm. He might have more arms and legs (laughs) than the average. (laughs) And it would would illustrate my experience of his chaos, which was primarily PTSD and rage, Mm. which I found terrifying. So I, I had on the one hand this terrifying experience and on the other hand this really unavailable experience and in between those two things, I had to navigate finding my way. I have an identical twin sister. She's eight minutes younger than I am, which mm. is somewhat relevant because my parents used to say to us when we were in trouble, well, you're older. You're the responsible one. Oh, God. I had eight extra minutes on the planet. Oh, boy. <laughs> the older responsible one. Wow. And so there was a, an expectation of me leading my own life, essentially, having enough skills of some kind to find my way out amidst the rage and anger and the depression in my household. There wasn't enough cohesiveness or availability or nurturing to actually hold on to anything that would become leadership skills for my life to to navigate my life. So I ended up turning to things that that I thought were really going to be helpful, Mm. like getting straight A's and perfectionism and being a really accomplished trumpet player and the the lead player on the field hockey team and the number one gymnast on the high school team. And Mm. I really excelled a lot publicly, but I was not excelling personally, privately, or at home. And at home, to manage some of my anxiety and the vacuousness of really a non-nurturing environment, not just that, that there wasn't nurturance, like it wasn't just absent, it was also specifically not nurturing. Mm -hmm. To guide my way there, I 
I would use these big charts. I was like in 10 years old and fifth grade, <laughs> writing these charts on the wall of how I was going to organize my day, which included oh, these wow. exercises, like sit-ups and push-ups, and then how much time I had available for eating breakfast. And then I would do my homework, and then there was a TV exercise show. And I was, I, mean, I was in the fifth grade doing this before school. Wow. Then I would get home from school and have the homework marathon accompanied by all out eating that I didn't know how or when to stop. Mm. And then the next day I would wake up for the routine of the exercise and the TV show and the the kind of monitoring of my food intake and my body burning calories. It was mm-hmm. I was living in the era, I'm 46 years old and in the time that I was watching my mother's relationship to eating, it was all about counting calories and trying to be thin. Yeah. And I saw that on TV also. So I really internalized a lot of that at such a young age. That I thought that was how I was going get, to get some leadership over my life. And it turned out that I could really excel at that. And I became a skillful anorexic who was highly functioning in my outside life mm-hmm. and not functioning well at all in my inside life. So nobody really noticed what was going on for you? No. In fact, my twin sister also was using food strategies, but mm. not in tandem or in conversation with me. We were wow. in the same household, but there wasn't a conversation about it. And sometimes there was this air of competition between us, like who might eat less at dinner. Mm-hmm. And it, as a twin, and we we're very identical twins, I mean, it's shockingly similar. Some identical mm-hmm. twins look less like each other than we do. Mm-hmm. And the, the nature of constant comparison as to who's who Right. Deeply embedded in us an urge for competition. And each of us left for college at young ages and while away from home, both of us became more profoundly anorexic. And nobody spoke about it in our family. We didn't speak about it with each other. We didn't have Mm -hmm. internet, email, cell phones, constant connection. We had an ongoing sense of vacuousness. Mm -hmm. There weren't phone calls. There weren't letters. We didn't get the care packages other kids might have gotten in college. I didn't live in a dorm. I lived in an apartment right away. And that was pretty Mm -hmm. isolating too. So both she and I had these patterns of navigating our lives with control and perfectionism and restriction, but we didn't talk about it and we didn't get noticed by our parents. Wow. That sounds so painful. It was painful, very isolating. And I, Mm -hmm. I think often though I was highly visible as a high school student because I had all these accolades. So did my sister. In fact, she was valedictorian. I was salutatorian. You mm-hmm. couldn't miss us. Mm-hmm. We were the twins in the high school class of 100 kids. Oh, wow. You could not miss who we were. And mm-hmm. yet at home, we felt really invisible. Yeah. So almost that outside effort to achieve was an, a response to the invisibility you felt at home. I think, yeah, it was in response to that. And as well, I think the effort for both of us was somehow to sort of finally be that good enough daughter that was going to get acknowledged. Right. That the acknowledgement we were getting was mostly negative. Do you feel like your parents prioritized outside achievements and like gave you a message that that's the way to win love or did you pick that up from somewhere else? My parents prioritized good grades for my sister and I Mm -hmm. and they threatened my brother when his grades were bad. Mm. So we... We did have that kind of nudge. In terms of our musical ability, I was the first chair trumpet player in the state of New York when I was in high school. My sister was the first chair French horn player. In terms of that, my parents weren't musical, and I think they felt proud and impressed, but they didn't know how to say it to us. Mm -hmm. So 
we were expected to rehearse our parts, our musical instruments, and to do that diligently. And, and they had to sign off on it for the middle school and the high school band. But they, their impress wasn't really showered upon us as appreciation or love. Mm-hmm. And what we did get certainly wasn't, it wasn't unconditional. Right. It was like, oh, this is, this is good that you did this. And I'll praise you about this specific thing, but not no global sort of praise or love. Yeah. And the people they would express their praise to about us weren't us. We would just hear them talking to somebody else about their pride in us. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't directed at us specifically. Right. Yeah. So you only only picked it up because they were telling someone else about it. That sounds familiar. I know a lot of people who have that sort of pattern in their families and have struggled with eating disorders. Yeah. I think we all we all really long from from our earliest inception, we long to be seen and mm-hmm. known and heard and held. And that was pretty vacant in my life. And yeah. it has had a ripple effect, both in terms of how I turned out in my professional adulthood world mm-hmm. and what I seek out in my personal life, not just my professional life. Right. Right. So yeah, tell me kind of the evolution of that then. How did you, when you got to college and you know started to be out on your own, how did you interact with the world? Well, things got pretty bad actually right away. I didn't know some of the basics that I thought I should know, and I didn't know who I could ask for help from. Mm-hmm. As I said, my parents would have expected us to have leadership over our lives. So, for example, I didn't know how to go to the grocery store and buy groceries for myself. Oh, wow. I, didn't, I knew how to cook a little bit, but I really didn't know how to feed myself. I didn't know how to manage the subway in Boston, which, of course, is a learning curve, but I felt overwhelmed by the basics, and I was too socially anxious to ask somebody for help. So I ended up walking long distances to get to destinations instead of going in the subway. Yeah. I didn't know how to set up like a daily routine when I didn't have the confines of the high school schedule. The college, I went to art school first. I didn't go to a regular college. I went to art school and it was an adult art school, not a college. People of all ages went to this art school. Oh, wow. There was no dorm, so there was no social engagement that was organized for us. So I was pretty isolated, and I didn't. I was afraid to ask for help from somebody else in the dark room, for example, in the photography dark room. Mm-hmm. So I was really stumbling along with this like perception that I should already know these things. Right. And with that mm-hmm. much anxiety, I, I had to medicate it somehow, and food turned out to be my go-to. Mm-hmm. First day-long restricting and then nighttime binging. And, and then I could go to sleep, which right. was such a relief <laughs> that I got some sleep because yeah. I was living in Boston on this street in Boston is called, I think it's called Newbury Street, might still be called mm-hmm. Newbury Street. It's behind the Boston Public Library. Mm. And it was filled with expensive shops and restaurants and people who had interesting lives from my perspective. And mm-hmm. they had places to go and things to do. And they had purpose and meaning. And I didn't. Mm, yeah. And I was in my apartment just feeling so desperately alone and devastated. Oh. And to listen to the bustle of life outside my window was painful. And fortunately, food helped me to go to sleep. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's as I say to my students and I acknowledge in my own life, those were the skills I had at the time, and they helped me to survive painful experiences. Yeah. I think that's so important in recovery is that for people to acknowledge what the eating disorder has done for them, you know, what those unho- unhealthy coping mechanisms were were serving to, you know, work against and yeah. and that 
you know, they can say goodbye to them, but there's going to be a mourning period probably of, of losing those things. Yeah. Yes. In fact, as I teach now as a, a yoga therapist and I help women with eating disorders and I look back mm-hmm. at my own history, I always say one of our essential life skills is to know how to grieve, to say mm-hmm. thank you for the pain that we've been in, to thank yeah. the strategies that helped us to survive. And as we're moving away from them, to know how to grieve and to once more say thank you with gratitude. Mm. And then to move on with the appropriate poignancy and joy that we're moving on. Right. That is beautiful. That's a really nice way to acknowledge it. Because I think sometimes people, when they first start to decide to get over their eating disorder, they want it, they want it gone and they feel like terrible people if they relapse or, you know, keep using behaviors, like there's something terribly wrong with them. But obviously it served a purpose. And if you keep returning to it, that's saying something, right? It's, it's, you know, saying something about where you're at. Yeah. I, I think one of the core issues with all addiction, and I find particularly helpful to talk about with my students and with myself and my friends is that the internalized shame voice is so domineering Mm, and so painful and sounds so true and is so consistently saying the same thing again and again that it must be true. (laughs) Like like commercials must be telling us the truth because they keep saying the same thing. And when I was in my most disordered time, I was in art school, as I was saying, and I literally had no sense that anybody else experienced the behaviors that I experienced, Mm -hmm. nor the shame that I experienced. And that is the other, unfortunately, so powerful thing about shame is that it isolates people. Totally. I so identify with that. And I went through my own period of disordered eating in college and after college. And I, I think I lived in so steeped in shame, like the walls were made of shame. You know, I just, mm-hmm. I couldn't see beyond what I was struggling with. And I couldn't see that, that it was shame that was keeping me from speaking out and that maybe other people were going through the same things I, were go- I was going through. Like, I just felt like there's something terribly wrong with me that I'm doing this with food and doing things to my body that other people seem to get, you know, intuitively. And now I realize like, Actually, 75% of women have disordered eating, some mm-hmm. recent research has said. So, like, you know, there's a lot of people out there struggling with this stuff. And, uh, you know, thank God for the internet and for people doing the work you're doing and, you know, people speaking out about this stuff because maybe it can get through to somebody who's struggling and thinks they're the only one or that they're, you know, terribly broken for mm-hmm. doing this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of interesting, paradoxically, that I'm a twin. We came from the same embryonic sac. We came oh from the God, same yeah. one one um, cell to two cells and so on and so forth. And yet we felt incredibly isolated and alone. Mm. And we weren't speaking about our issues with each other. In fact, one time I did call my sister to, to say, I'm really struggling and I need some help with this. And I, I had seen her body composition, so I also knew mm. she was underweight and using anorexia and control and perfectionism and Mm -hmm. the phone call was so unhelpful because I had expected my sister to have skills that I didn't have Mm -hmm. expecting that somehow (laughs) those skills had come from somewhere in my family system but they couldn't have right and so she responded with what we were provided which was a non-nurturing response to me and I felt even more alone even more failed and flawed and inept and And I was in art school at the time, and I was 
essentially failing out of art school, not by my grades, but by my mm -hmm. attendance, because I just, I couldn't keep showing up for the art critiques. Which oh. was, and then, so there were two wow. things. There were the art critiques where here I'm making these expressive art projects on alternative mediums, photography, mm -hmm. canvas, anything I could get my hands on. And then you have to take your self-expression to a critique. Oh. Well, I had enough inner criticism. Right. And then occasionally a senior student in the institute, the art institute, would have a show. And at the show, there would be this buffet of desserts and foods. Mm. And there'd also be wine and, and other things, which I wasn't drinking alcohol at the time. Mm -hmm. I was terrified of ingesting alcohol and having things get worse. Mm. But so I'd go to these art openings and everybody looked like they were having a great time. They were all connected. They were reviewing the art. They had the language of art. Mm -hmm. They were so cultured and sort of grown up. And I was eating brownies. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. I could not make it through an art opening without suffering greatly. And mm. I, I did transfer out of art school at that point. And I was going to art school in Boston, in Kenmore Square. Mm -hmm. And I found this program across the river in Harvard Square at Leslie College mm. to study art therapy. Oh, wow. I really didn't know what it was, but I knew that's where I was going next. Mm -hmm. And I told my art professors, and they, they didn't know what that was in that time this was 1988 mm -hmm. and 89 and my art professors at the institute said what is that and are you going to be a therapist for artists like <laughs> do painters need counselors <laughs> <laughs> so it was I was so I had the sense like I'm going into some black hole over here in Cambridge Massachusetts mm -hmm. but when I got there to art therapy school I was able to hear more from professors about the inner life and the other mm -hmm. students. I entered graduate school and undergraduate school at the same time. They had a combined program. Oh, that's great. And I got to hear students actively speaking about their inner life. Mm -hmm. And it basically saved my life to hear other people oh, had wow. inner experiences that were distressing or painful, and they were actively trying to navigate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, because that wasn't even acknowledged in your family, like... The no. inner experience did not exist. It didn't. Wow. It didn't exist. Wow, that's and amazing. I understand, you know, hindsight is so powerful. And I, I can see my mother's lineage and her mother's lineage mm -hmm. and upstream from that. I can see the, the cultural and historical effects on her family system. And I can see it in my dad's as well. Mm -hmm. My father's a Vietnam vet. And I can see the impact of the times on him. So I, I have... a a depth and breadth of forgiveness towards my parents for what was and an mm -hmm. openness to what can be. But primarily that, that was afforded to me by my personal recovery, my willingness not to resent them, yeah. and my ability to then get curious about what happened in their family systems too. And I started looking through the lens of sociology and history and mm -hmm. interpersonal neurobiology. And I was like, of course, yeah. of course, that's how their brains were shaped. And that's what they had to provide me. It's so helpful to look at those context clues to, to understand what was going on for someone because I'm sure all of us go through a period in recovery of being angry towards our parents and angry at the forces that you know pushed us in, into the disorder. But if you can get to that place of curiosity, it's so liberating and so yeah. you know helps, helps you empathize too with what they struggled with. Yeah, yes, yeah. And... So, my parents, my mother hasn't yet learned the skill of empathy, and I can see upstream in her life how she probably won't. Mm. But my father has, and 
that's been a saving grace for me because his I identified that his rage in my life was the most significant problem. I wasn't able mm-hmm. to identify my mother's depression as an issue at all mm-hmm. until I was in recovery. And I could look back and see that that there was no protector, there was no nurture, there was yeah. there wasn't a feminine presence in my household. I didn't I didn't know what it meant to have a female body or I wasn't educated mm-hmm. about like when you get your menstrual cycle or what it means to have a sexual relationship or how to appreciate being in your body and the cycles of hormones. I had mm-hmm. no news of that at all. Wow. So your mom just was sort of checked out of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I, I might say it just a little differently, Christy, that mm-hmm. she never got to check into it in her own upbringing. Mm. So she didn't actually check out. She didn't have it available to her. Wow. So looking even upstream from there, that there was something missing for a long time in my family history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that intergenerational transmission. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So yeah, so how did you then start to recover? Was that transfer to art therapy kind of the first step? Yeah, the transfer of the school was significant, though initially Mm. my eating disorder actually got worse Mm. because I now people are actually talking about their inner life and I find that inspiring and oh my God, Mm -hmm. and what am I going to have be required to talk about? And so one thing was that I... I discovered a few things while I was in graduate school. Mm-hmm. The first being that the teachers were talking about Vipassana meditation. So they were starting to talk spiritually, which I was very interested in mm-hmm. and had been since I was a kid. When my teachers at, at art therapy school and the fellow students were willing to talk about meditation and spirituality, it really mm-hmm. lit up my life. And it was refreshing to find out that there was more available to me as a human than my own distressing mind chatter, mm-hmm. which was so filled with shame and anxiety and perfectionism. And I was so isolated that to hear these as options and to be surrounded by it for years, because that's the nature of graduate school, mm-hmm. it's it was sinking in. And I was able to open it myself to it more and more. There was another thing that was really a significant turning point, which is worth mentioning because mm-hmm. it's it's actually, I tell the story in my book, but I also tell it for each time I'm able to talk to women about what it means to kind of get out of our disordered patterns into a wider expanse of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had this event where I was going to get out of the insanity of the city and my own thoughts and my own distress. And I rented a car mm-hmm. and I drove up to the White Mountains in New Hampshire the presidential ranges up there, and I mm-hmm. borrowed a backpack from someone. I had no idea how to actually go backpacking <laughs> or camping on my own. Mm. And I was I was somewhat underweight at the time, mm-hmm. and I packed this backpack with these things I was going to be doing on my journey. So it included watercolors and pastels and the paper to paint on, and it included books I was going to read and journals I was <laughs> going to write in. And it, it included the food that I was willing to eat at the time, which was mm-hmm. uh, like apples, carrots, cucumbers, which are very heavy. Mm-hmm. And I put this backpack on only once I got to the trailhead. Wow. I didn't try it on at home. I put it oh. in the car and I got to the trailhead and I almost fell over backwards. Oh, no. Fortunately, Oof. when you first hike up, you're leaning a little bit forward. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I hiked to the top of this mountain carrying something that weighed more than I did. Oh, my gosh. And. I had to set it down. It was exhausting. Mm -hmm. And that moment of setting it down was also the moment of lifting my gaze off of my feet as you're climbing up with a too heavy pack. You're basically looking down the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I was able to 
put down the weight of that backpack, lift my gaze, and see this incredible expanse. And I saw 360 degrees Mm. of radiance, and I was like, that's what I want. That is so what I want. And Mm. physically, putting down the backpack was pretty important. But the next thing I did was to stretch my body because mm-hmm. I was really aching and exhausted. And it turns out that that stretching thing that I was doing is now called yoga. <laughs> <laughs> and you and had no knowledge of it at the time. You just I didn't just discovered it. Yeah, I discovered it really out of my own body's motivation. Wow. And I pr- whatever I was doing there in that moment with this expanse of awe and radiance, I kept doing this so-called stretching. Mm-hmm. But I also, when I was in nature and it was that huge, it overwhelmed my brain chatter. Wow. So that few days that I spent in the forest and in the mountains in New Hampshire was also a significant turning point for me because I didn't want to go back home where I was angry at the mannequins in the stores and I didn't know mm-hmm. how to feed myself and I was lonely walking through the city and I'd go to art therapy school and have incredible discussions and then feel overwhelmed at home. Mm-hmm. And this provided a kind of relief that I hadn't felt before. And somehow, magically, I was in the right place at the right time, and Vipassana was growing. Mm-hmm. There were yoga classes in the food co-ops and the church basements. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was not widely known. There was no yoga clothing company that I knew of at the time. Right. I didn't even know that yoga props existed. I'm not sure that they that they were really that well used back then. Right. Yeah, because nobody was manufacturing them. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right. But I did stick with it, and it, it really helped along the way for the setbacks I was inevitably going to have when I was trying to get into recovery. Mm-hmm. In the early days, I could get like an hour, and mm-hmm. then I had a, a slip, and then I could have a few days, and then I'd have a slip, and um, then I'd had maybe a week, and then I would crash. And, mm-hmm. and there was a time where I was still counting the days, but it's been more than 20 years, and I, I, I can say more than 20 years, but I couldn't count the days now. Right. So how did, how did yoga help in your recovery? Well, a few things that were important. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I felt like I was doing something mm-hmm. that the professors in art therapy school were recommending, which was meditative practice of some kind. Mm-hmm. I would... I'm going to almost use the word right there, pretend. I would pretend to sit in meditation after I did my (laughs) stretching because I really didn't know what to do in meditation. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing, except I had this concept, I should blank my mind, Right. which I know now is relatively impossible to blank your mind. Mm -hmm. It's more the relationship to your mind than it is the blankness. Um, Right. But I was, I think what was helpful is that I had something that I felt I was doing on my own behalf. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be body-centered, and it helped my thinking state. I felt that much con- more connected to myself when I would leave the house in the morning to go to school. Mm-hmm. I felt that much more willing to notice when I was hungry and to nourish myself instead of restrict or starve myself. Mm-hmm. And I started to feel more willing to talk to other people about my disordered eating pattern. And I made two or three friends at a like a 12-step process, which wasn't really 12-step because they didn't have it at that time for anorexia. Mm-hmm. But I made a couple of friends that ended up being lifesavers to me. So I found a yoga class eventually, and mm-hmm. particularly when I moved to the West Coast. Mm, um, yeah. And in a formal yoga class, like instructed by an actual teacher, not mm-hmm. just by my own body's intuition, 
Um, when it was my private practice, like just at home or sometimes camping or hiking, mm-hmm. the thing I came to the most often was awe. But when I took a yoga class, the thing I came to most often was loss and grief. Mm. And I could find myself just sobbing after the yoga class. Wow. Blessedly, the first thing I experienced was awe. And it took a while before the grief started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think I would have stuck with it if it had been all grief and loss in the beginning. Yeah, but no. My body was holding so much tension that there was a necessary period of crying. And fortunately, there was that prior season of awe that I could induce by practicing yoga. I was like Mm -hmm. stretching and feeling like there was a whole different me coming through Mm. because the tension and the stress evaporated for a short time and I saw myself and the world differently. In fact, one day, (laughs) this is an important story I've told my students before Mm -hmm. I was experiencing this sort of thing that you might call joy, but I didn't really know what it was. Mm -hmm. And the kind of joy I was experiencing, I couldn't put my finger on how it had come to be. I hadn't gotten an A. I hadn't just performed the trumpet. I hadn't stuck my balance beam routine. <laughs> I, hadn't, I hadn't managed my food perfectly. I hadn't mm-hmm. done something to create this experience of joy, which I now call the unconditional joy. Mm-hmm. And I was certain. I mean, I felt so profoundly that I was only allowed to be that happy because I would soon cross the street and be run over by a car and die. <sighs> oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I crossed the street and I wasn't killed by the oncoming vehicles. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, tomorrow when I fly to North Carolina, the plane mm-hmm. will crash. Right. It's just a matter I, of time. Something's coming down the pipe if I'm feeling yeah. this happy. Yeah. Oh. I was able to also identify that that amount of joy mm-hmm. was like breaking a family rule. And I was dying in a way. Yeah. Uh, That's it a great was point. Very visceral. That when that kind of joy came over me again, I was like, "Oh no, oh no!" Mm-hmm. Last time I didn't die, but this time I will. Right. And it took a while for me to feel that being joyful without conditions and experiencing awe just because mm-hmm. was permitted as right. a human being. That it was permitted. Right. That's such a great lesson because when you grow up with that perfectionistic mindset of having to perform for your love, not doing anything feels so foreign. Yeah. And I think yoga was, I I discovered yoga also early in my recovery process. And I remember being so floored by the idea of non-competition and Mm -hmm. non-judgment in yoga. Like, wait, so you don't have to do anything like special. You're not supposed to be comparing yourself to some ideal or achieving anything. You can just do this practice in your own way and it'll work. Like that's yeah. crazy. You know, at first I like wouldn't accept it. And then I was, and then I was so felt so warmed by it, you know, like that, cause it was something I had never experienced in my family growing up. It was always about competition. Mm-hmm. And were you taking yoga classes in a formal setting or did you discover it on your own? Well, I first I took my first yoga class in college when I was really struggling with the eating disorder and I found it extremely profound and amazing and I had, you know, hadn't breathed that deeply in so mm-hmm. long and I kind of almost got a high from breathing deeply. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is amazing. I have to go back. And then I just didn't go back. I just never made the time to go back until probably about five years later um, when I had already moved to New York. I was, I belonged to a gym and was exercising compulsively. And I discovered this yoga class at the gym and I just thought, oh, this will help me, you know, stretch out the 
the kinks and stuff that I've developed from all this other activity I've been doing and, you know, stretching is good and whatever. So I just joined a gym yoga class and Mm -hmm. that was sort of the first step because one of the yoga teachers there was, you know, taught at studios as well and was very, you know, steeped in yoga philosophy and kind of imparted it little by little. Mm -hmm. Um, So then, you know, I moved away from that apartment into a new place where there wasn't a gym close by and I made the decision to join a yoga studio as my main form of working out. And I was still sort of doing it compulsively. I was still doing it from a place of like, I want my body to look good. So I need this physical activity, not just for, you know, the idea of health or feeling good or whatever. Um, but that was starting to creep in there too. Like that, mm-hmm. that idea that, oh, it, it's, it's not just about how you look. It's also about how you feel was starting to creep in. So yeah. it took a while, I think. And, you know, even though it was in sort of a formal setting, it, I don't think I completely absorbed the messages. I wasn't ready to absorb the messages right away, you know? Yeah. It was very interesting to see because the yoga industry, which I, I'm calling an industry on purpose. Mm, yeah. It's evolved so much that there are mixed messages now that the philosophy, fortunately, it sounds like you got exposed to philosophy from a mm-hmm. teacher who was able to really exude that. Yeah. But some of the philosophy is getting distorted because it comes yeah. to the West. It comes through our lenses of commercialism, materialism, competition. Totally. And it starts being usurped by the beauty and fashion industry and the body image industry and mm-hmm. The philosophy is relatively hard to find in some settings because it's disallowed in some circumstances. For example, I train yoga teachers, and the teachers who say they're teaching in certain gyms that we have in Portland, Mm -hmm. they're explicitly asked not to speak about the philosophy. Wow. I also teach yoga in the prison system, and we are not held back from talking about the spirituality or the philosophy of yoga. Wow. They want the inmates to have access to that information. Oh, that's, so that's a really different dichotomy between those two settings. And totally for me, the philosophy of yoga is, is how yoga became a lifestyle. And, and really it gave so much traction to my recovery because there was this mm-hmm. physical component where I finally felt better, but the philosophy that was seeping in mm-hmm. became so nutrient dense as it were, <laughs> that I just felt so finally filled by life. I didn't feel so hungry in the sense that I didn't even know what my appetites were for when I was younger, but started to have an appetite for love and authenticity and honesty and vulnerability. What was the, what was sort of the teaching that helped you? Well, a couple things that were significant to come to mind right now. And one is the, the model that yoga uses called the koshas. Mm -hmm. So kosha means layer, or Mm -hmm. you can think of it as a sheath, like, uh, Uh, like an envelope. But Mm -hmm. if I say the word layer, it makes more sense. You can picture it like there are these concentric circles on the surface of the water. Mm -hmm. And the most central circle is begun when the stone drops into the pond. And that they call ananda. That central experience is ananda means love and belonging and unconditional joy. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's translated as bliss. But I like to translate it as unconditional belonging, Mm -hmm. that you just have the sense you belong and you don't have to earn it. You can't lose it. It's available to you and Mm -hmm. it's magnetically pulling you back home all the time. That's really nice. The next circle out from there on these concentric circles is called the wisdom body. In yoga, we say vijnana maya kosha. Mm -hmm. It means from that center of belonging, you can experience your intuition. 
your body intelligence, your innate wisdom, which isn't about your IQ or your schooling, Mm -hmm. but is about knowing something really deeply underneath your conditioning. Right. And the next layer is called Manamaya Kosha, means the mind, which is where we house all our beliefs and our attitudes and where shame has so infiltrated many of us. Mm-hmm. And out from there is what we call the Pranamaya Kosha or the energy body. And the last frontier out from there is the Anamaya Kosha, which is the muscle and bone body that we walk about in. Mm-hmm. And so what yoga taught me was the center of my experience is unconditional belonging, not shame. Mm. And the next layer is that there's some intelligence operating on my behalf that knows how to grow my fingernails and blink my eyes and mm-hmm. breathe my lungs and it knows how to shed skin cells and digest food when I don't get in the way. Mm-hmm. And the next thing would be from there that if I am able to clear my mind from some of its conditioned and unfortunate patterns, my Vital health, that's the energy body, would be Mm -hmm. that much better. Mm -hmm. Like you said, you were breathing deeply and you felt really high from that. Mm -hmm. And then the physical body would also feel more healthy and would be sustainable. And, you know, I was, I felt sick for so long with my digestion and my eating issues that to go to the center of this concept and try to trust my body intelligence was very difficult at first. Yeah. But it was somehow more trustworthy than my own thoughts about counting calories and dieting again. Mm-hmm. And I, I must have been in enough pain from my own issues that I was willing to say, let me try this model of trusting my body's intelligence. Right. And yoga was a big support for that. And the teachers who taught this model of the koshas helped me immensely. That's beautiful. That is really amazing. And I identify a lot with, um, you know, you said this in the book too, that being able to trust that there's so many automatic processes in your body that work without your intervention. And in fact, how distressing would it be to have to be responsible for all those things, like our heart pumping and our lungs breathing and skin cells turning over and all that. So, you know, why are we, why do we feel this illusion of control over our metabolism, basically our hunger and fullness and, body size and, you know, energy levels, why can't we trust that our body knows what to do on that front too? Yeah. We've been sort of deluded into thinking we have this control over it that we don't have. Yeah. Yes. And that we're supposed to be able to control it too, because I should be able to control the size of my body, Mm -hmm. even though I have these genetics. Right. Right. Exactly. I should be tall, for example, but I'm not. For all the wishing I did, I should have turned out tall. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> right. I know. And there's no, there's no industry devoted to heightening people or, you know, making, making well, there are platform flip-flops. That's a good point. <laughs> True. But yeah, no, it's, it's amazing to me how this one trait of our physiology is so, is like given so much weight, you know, for lack of a better term. Yeah. It's like that why does that hold all the power? And yet, you know, we're not trying to change and, you know, few, some people notwithstanding, but most of us are not trying to change our eye color or our, right. our height or, you know, these other basic things about us. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. In fact, in the model of the koshas, what I was just talking about, I tell mm-hmm. my yoga students, like here in the West, we spend our time on that outer layer, which is the physical mm-hmm. body. And we are doggedly trying to change it. Right. But no matter how much asana you do, you will not grow a third arm. You will not have another nose. This uh-huh. is a, the body is not as moldable as we think it is. 
And if you go to the next layer in where you have your respiratory system and your circulatory system and your nervous system, mm -hmm. we now know in modern science, what yoga knew way back, that you can orient your neurological wiring towards greater vitality and capacity and health. And it's more changeable than physical body attributes. Mm. And that has a bigger impact on your mind. So you're going in from the outer layer of the koshas to the more and more deeply penetrating ability for transformation. That's amazing. So, yeah, our physical bodies can only do so much transformation. And by the way, you and I, I don't know how old you are, but I'm on the composting side. <laughs> Not to say I'm, I'm going downhill fast, no. but there's a certain amount of composting. I had a, a gray hair recently. Mm -hmm. and I was like, oh, look at my first oh, gray hair. Yes. <laughs> and it's different texture than my other hair. And I thought, mm -hmm. yeah, good thing I know that the physical body is the least likely to be transformed and that I can transform my nervous system and therefore my mind and my heart much more deeply and more long-lastingly and more amazingly. Mm -hmm. And I spent my time on that. My, I mean, I nourish my body. I do take care of my physical health in mm -hmm. ways that I respect and my family respects and my husband and my stepsons and my community because mm -hmm. I use my body as my professional tool. Right. And I do take care of it. I'm not saying I'm dismissive of that, mm -hmm. but the effort to change the body, to have it be something other than what it is, that has fairly well evaporated, and I, I want to nourish more my pranamaya kosha, manamaya kosha, and come back home mm -hmm. to those inner experiences of unconditional belonging. That's beautiful. There's another question I had, which is, um, you know, in my early forays into yoga, again, I definitely encountered some teachers who were very, had very specific ideas about food. And I think that's an unfortunate thing that sometimes gets conveyed in yoga classes is, you know, even the ones who are really steeped in the philosophy, it's like they'll, you know, give a sermon about veganism as being um, a part of the ahimsa, do no harm yoga philosophy and how, yeah. you know, if you really want to be a good yogi, you're going to be vegan. Well, to someone who's struggling with disordered eating and restrictive tendencies, hearing a message like that is obviously very triggering and yeah. might, you know, sort of undo some of the good work that yoga has done. So how would you, you know, suggest that people navigate that kind of thing in yoga? Yeah. Uh, first, I think it's highly personal how people's bodies experience nutrition mm -hmm. and what they need. And when I was coming out of a nutritional deficit, because of my restricting, mm -hmm. there were certain foods I needed more of to help my brain recover. Yeah. And I take the concept of ahimsa very heartfelt for me, very heartfully, I guess is the word you'd use. Mm -hmm. And that is to do no harm. It's called nonviolence in English. So I like to say first do less harm, then do more good. It's actually a phrase I created for my students. First do less harm, mm -hmm. then do more good. It means First, do something slightly less harmful than what you've been doing, and mm -hmm. you'll promote the urge to do something that's more nurturing to yourself. But if I do harm to myself, I'm going to be inclined to have shame win again, and I might become more berating, more condescending, more harmful to myself again. Mm -hmm. So if I hear a conversation and I'm struggling with restricting tendencies, and now I'm hearing permission to restrict, a requirement to restrict, mm -hmm. an ambiance in which the teacher might like me better if I restrict, and I want teacher's approval because I'm, I'm hungry for some contact. Yeah. I'm setting myself up for potential sabotage. Mm -hmm. 
The second thing I'd say about that is we have to also practice nonviolence to our own bodies. And there's a respectful way to have a relationship with foods that include meat Mm -hmm. and fish and a non-vegan diet. Absolutely. I'll take a little scenic detour for a moment and tell you that when I was 33, I was diagnosed with mercury poisoning. Oh, wow. Which I, my doctor at the time suspected I had since childhood. Oh my god. But my health and vitality was strong enough until I was in a serious car accident at 33. Ugh. And my reserves, my health went down from the accident and the mercury level was then revealed. Wow. So if you think of like two containers sitting side by side and one is filled with mercury at a certain level and the other one is higher than that and that's my vitality, mm-hmm. but my vitality was being drained by the car accident symptoms. And it went to a certain low, and the mercury just flooded my whole system. I was very ill. Wow. And my doctor said specifically to me, after 20 years of being a vegetarian, he said, you need to stop eating all soy products, Mm. and you need to eat meat. Because my thyroid was very affected, and his Mm -hmm. understanding of the thyroid is that soy isn't so good for the thyroid and so on. Mm -hmm. So he said this, and I was like, no, I've been a vegetarian for 20 years. And then my Chinese medicine doctor said the same thing on the same day. Oh, wow. And then I sought out a toxicologist for the mercury treatment, and he said the same thing. You need to be – because what they do is they chelate mercury from your body, mm-hmm. which means an agent goes in, a chelating agent goes into your system, and it's not discerning enough to only take mercury. It takes all the heavy metals. Oh. So iron. I was going to be at risk of being really Zinc. anemic and having some other problems, serious problems. Right. So – I had to start eating meat again, and that was really under the principle of ahimsa to my own body wow. and to my vitality and, and to surviving the chelation. And other people might have had other ways to do it, but my doctor said to me, you have the highest case of mercury poisoning that I've treated in 15 oh. years, Wow! and you walked in here, you're not in a wheelchair, I want you to walk out of here, I want you to keep doing yoga, something is working for you, but this is not a slow process. We need to be really timely about this because mm-hmm. the effects will only get worse for you. So for expediency, I did what they recommended. Mm-hmm. My twin sister is still a vegetarian and managed to have two vegetarian pregnancies. And that's working for her. And it, it wouldn't be workable for me to be a vegetarian at this time. Right. And that's a great point that it, there's so many different ways to be healthy. And if you're coming at it from a place of honoring your body and really doing no harm to your body with your particular circumstances in mind, that is the best possible way to practice ahimsa. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's difficult to have, as a new student, to have the courage to ask a question of Mm -hmm. or get clarification from a teacher who has, if they have their perspective is closer to fundamentalist perspective, it's Mm -hmm. very hard to ask questions and have the courage to do so. So I I would recommend they seek out also resources where teachers are having active discussions on the internet about how they feed or nourish themselves and what Mm -hmm. ahimsa means to them. And not to look too dogmatically because I know my perfectionistic, anorexic brain was very dogmatic. Mm -hmm. And it's it's easier to live life with less dogma. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. My karma karma and less dogma. Right, exactly. (laughs) I was just going to say, my karma ran over your dogma. It's my favorite Mm -hmm. bumper sticker. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Can you tell us where people can find out more about your book and your work? Yeah, I have a new website. This Mm -hmm. is a a learning curve for me is to prioritize myself instead of my nonprofits. I have two nonprofits in Portland, Oregon. Mm. 
And they're both doing great work, but I'm going to tell you my website. That's great. So it's sarahjoyyoga.com. And on that website is a link to purchase the book from either Powell's Books, which is our big store in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. It's known nationally and internationally, but it's our local resource. And also Mm -hmm. you can buy it on Amazon. I definitely want to recommend that people check out your book. It's got so much wisdom and just such a beautiful message. So I, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing it with us. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. It's fun to talk with you. Yeah, really fun to talk with you too. So that's our show. Thanks again so much to our guest for being here and to you guys for listening. We'll be back again in two weeks with another brand new episode. So be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Android or whatever your favorite podcast app is if you haven't done so already. Meanwhile, I'd love to stay in touch with you online. The best way is by email. So if you join my email VIP list, you'll get exclusive tips about intuitive eating and body positivity and updates about all my work as well as new episodes of the podcast. So if you go to christyharrison.com slash email, you can sign up there. That's christyharrison.com slash email. And I would love to have you guys all on my VIP list. And then you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Food Psych on Facebook and Food Psych Pod on Twitter. And then I am also on Instagram, just me this time. I don't have a separate account for the podcast, but I'm on Instagram at Christy Harrison. And the first I is a one. The music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL, and the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Who just wants your food, and you ain't really beat. Have you ever went over your friend's house?